0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you today. As Drew said, um, my name is Jeff. I'm the assistant pastor here. Pastor Joe and Pastor Janice are up with the brethren in um, Columbus at the Columbus Vineyard. I just really like to use the word brethren. It's it's a fun word. Um, So I get to be with you today, and I'm I'm excited about the opportunity to share. Um, Today's message is brought to you by the fact that I have a bit of a personality where every so often, um, I, will, I will see something or hear something just over and over and over again. And I find myself kind of stuck, almost obsessed with like, why do we say that? Or why do we do that? Um, that's why for me, if you missed out on bread and butter, I'm sorry that you did. Because bread and butter was a wonderful time where for four Sundays in a row, um, we got to talk about the different elements of Sunday morning. Um, why do we do worship? Why do we do preaching? Why do we do prayer? Why is the church structured the way that it is? And for me, just the way that I'm kind of wired, I need that refreshment of knowing why we're doing what we're doing. Um, I'm, I'm not necessarily content with just like, we're going to do this because it's what we do. It's like, I want to know why we do it. So to find the, the biblical roots of why we do church the way we do was really refreshing um, for me. But this, this particular message was kind of inspired by a couple of weeks ago um, when we sang a song, uh, and it was the very first song of the day, I believe, and, and this happens to me sometimes where I will just get stuck for the rest of the worship set, for the rest of the songs that we sing. I will get stuck on something that we said in the first one, um, and I want to know why we say that, why we sing that, and so we sang a song the other day. Um, that it's called See a Victory, and it says, I'm going to see a victory, and we just sing that over and over again. I'm going to see a victory, I'm going to see a victory. The battle belongs to the Lord, right? And uh, it, I, I, got, I got thinking about other times that we talk about victory, and I don't know about you, but the word victory for me conjures up Um, like old school, like Baptist or Pentecostal churches where they're just singing about victory in Jesus and there's some uh, preacher in a suit and he's red-faced and he's sweating and he's like, are you gonna see the victory, right? All this kind of stuff about victory, victory, victory. And sometimes with with the songs that we sing and the the language that we use sometimes, I think like, are we just obsessed with fighting, right? In, In worship, like think about this. Even this morning, two of the songs that we sang cited something about battle. okay? In Gone, we sang, I'm going to shout like the battle's wand uh, like uh, praises a weapon that will overcome. In The Lion and the Lamb, we sing about how God is roaring with power and fighting our battles. And then in plenty of other songs, we talk about, uh, you know, this is how I fight my battles. These, these are my weapons. Heaven is fighting for me. Um, the battle belongs to the Lord. All these kinds of things. And it just feels like, on, on the surface, we're just obsessed with fighting. We just really, really like to fight. Or... Could it be, perhaps, that we just kind of can't help it, right? It's kind of like the the part in the very first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, if you'll excuse a movie reference for me, that's kind of how I think is is in movies and plot points and quotes and whatnot. Um, And I just remember on on the ship and and Captain Barbosa says to uh, Elizabeth, he says, you best start believing in ghost stories, Mrs. Turner, because you're in one. Right? It's like for you and I, we best start believing in this idea of spiritual warfare because we're kind of in it. We're kind of in the thick of it. It's an inconvenient reality that we're in a spiritual battle. Trust me, I of all people would much rather pretend that it wasn't real. Okay? I would much rather not have to worry about the fact that there are like spiritual forces and things going on and things that we have to consider as we, as we go through our lives. But I think some of the things that have been happening in our community of faith are proof positive of the fact that we are in a spiritual battle, that there is active opposition to us. Our health, our our spiritual growth, our marriages, our relationships, our families, our everyday lives, there is active opposition to all of those things. And so as we are moving forward, but specifically as the kingdom of God is moving forward in us and through us, it really ticks the enemy off, okay? Okay. Now, there's a lot that we could be saying about spiritual warfare, and I don't wanna get into all the mechanics of it, but we could talk about how um, the, the, the dangers of just putting our heads in the sand and pretending that there's not a battle going on. We could talk about the fact that not everything is spiritual warfare. I'm sorry, if your latte was cold, that's not spiritual warfare. If you didn't get the parking spot you wanted at Walmart, that's not spiritual warfare, okay? Not everything is spiritual warfare. We could talk about the fact that, that just because you're not experiencing hardship doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong and you're not spiritual enough. Or we could talk about the fact that just because you are experiencing hardship doesn't necessarily mean that it's spiritual warfare. We could go in all those different directions, but suffice it to say that the long and the short of it is there is a battle going on and both our God and our enemy are creative in what they're able to use as weapons. Okay? Think about it like this. A word can be a weapon, because words are, in fact, in and of themselves, very powerful. God can use a word, uh, the, he can use the encouragement of a stranger, someone you've never met before, or someone that you know, to, to encourage you, to give you strength to keep going, to tell you not to quit, to, to, to keep moving forward. But the enemy can use the careless complaints or curses of someone who's around us, someone who is having a bad day and says something to us. He can use that as a weapon to get at us, to to, to make us uh, feel put down or distracted or that we are worthless or that we are simply worth less, if you see what I mean. okay? Those can be weapons. A gift can be a weapon. Um, God can use a gift, uh, whether that's a bouquet of flowers or someone buys you a coffee or whatever it is, whatever uh, whatever gifts you like to receive, he can use that to let you know, hey, you're not alone. Someone is in your corner, someone is thinking about you, someone is on your team, you're not alone. Or the enemy can use it and say, look at what that person gets. Look at, look at how somebody's thinking of them, look at how you're all alone, but this person has somebody who's in their corner, somebody who loves them, somebody who cares about them, somebody who's, who's thinking about them. A job can be a weapon. God can put you in a place where you can uh, impact people to, to, to bless them, to help them, to provide direction, to, to uh, give resources, to meet some sort of need. But on the other hand, the enemy can use your job or, or the, the elements of your job at which you're less skilled or less gifted or, or whatnot to make you feel like you aren't making a difference you're just spinning your wheels, you're wasting your time, and that you are no better than your worst day at work. Okay, anything and everything can be a weapon, if you want to look at it that way. Okay, the point is that the battle is raging here and now, and we have to be aware of that. We live right now in the now and the not yet of Jesus's victory over sin, over death, over hell, over the grave, all of these kind of things. And so I want to talk just for a minute this morning about that word victory, okay? Um, If you look it up in the dictionary, so this is the English uh, definition of the word victory. It means a few different things. It means a success or triumph over an enemy in battle or in war. It means an engagement ending in such triumph. It means the ultimate and decisive superiority in any battle or contest, or a success or superior position achieved against any opponent, opposition, difficulty, etc. Now, for me, I really gravitate towards that third definition of victory. The ultimate and decisive superiority in any battle or contest. Because a victory is a noun, but it also just kind of seems to be uh, an adjective. I'm not the best with my parts of speech off the top of my head. but, But we live in victory, right? We we can have a victory, we can experience a victory, but we also live in victory. And I just love, um, I I love the word victory because there's something about it that allows us to use it on its own. Think about it like this. If I can use this as an example, and I know that it's probably not going to mean a lot to everybody, but right now, the NBA playoffs are still happening, and I don't know how or why last night Miami blew game six, but they were up three games to none, and now it's 3-3, and that's still not over. But okay, if you win game three, for example... You are not yet victorious because you have to get to the end of the series. The series has to end for you to be victorious. You can be victorious in a specific part of the series. Okay? You can have a game three victory, as it were, but victory as, it, as, as the broader concept doesn't happen until you've won that final game because you have to win four games to move on if you, if you catch the drift there. Okay? Victory feels like a word that you use for game seven. Because this thing is on the line, it is being decided, and if you win, you advance. If you lose, you go home. That is what we're talking about victory. If, if you are victorious in game three, but you end up losing the series, you were not ultimate or decisive, and that is what victory is all about. And so when we talk about victory in Jesus Christ, we are talking of ultimate and decisive things. We are in the end game, as it were, okay? We are not in the industry of quick fixes and easy solutions and here, just try this verse out, here, try this practice out, and and everything will be okay. It's like we're in a long-term game right now. We're talking about an ultimate end to sin and death and evil and suffering and all of those sorts of things in the world, okay? So that being said, let's get to Scripture this morning. Uh, I want to go with you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, verses 50 through 58. So, as you're going there, I just want to let you know what Paul has been talking about in this specific portion of the letter to the Corinthians up until this point. Um, chapter 15 has a lot to do with the resurrection of Jesus and the, the, the difference that it makes, okay? How, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. <clears throat> Excuse me. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, In other words, from the moment that you hear the gospel until the moment that you hear your last breath, if that is the only duration of time for which you have hope in Christ, then it's all in vain. Okay, we, are of all, we are of all people most to be pitied, is what Paul actually says. He talks about the way that the resurrection affects the very orientation of our lives, the things that we do, the things that we experience. He says, if the dead aren't raised, then why are we in danger all of the time? In other words, if the dead aren't raised, then why am I preaching this gospel, and why am I being persecuted for it? Okay, if the dead aren't raised, then why don't we just eat and drink, because tomorrow we die, and it doesn't mean anything anyway. Okay, that's what he's been talking about to the Corinthians up until this point. So we get to this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. It's going to be up on the screen just in case you don't have your Bible or your Bible app handy. Um, But this is what Paul writes. He says, I tell you, brothers, I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. In other words... This is going to be confusing. Okay? This is not necessarily the most straightforward thing in the world. Okay? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. <clears throat> For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, okay? Pause right there, okay? This thing that, 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 that Paul's about to tell the Corinthians has not happened yet, okay? It is, it is a future reality. This is something that is yet to happen, okay? He says, he says death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of all of that, therefore... My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay? I just want you to notice that if this makes your head spin a little bit, that's okay. Because in in verse 51, Paul says, I'm telling you a mystery. Okay? If you feel a bit twisted, that's normal. If you're confused, if it's unclear, you were warned. Okay? That's okay. Okay? This, this stuff doesn't necessarily sit with us. It doesn't necessarily click and make the most sense, but, but we want to continue to, to wrestle with it and to live in the reality of it. And so, as we talk about the idea that God is, in Jesus Christ, victorious over death, if we want to inherit that victory ourselves, then we have to notice a couple of things. And the first thing that we notice is that setbacks and losses are a necessary part of victory. Okay? Practically speaking, and apologies for speaking so much sports talk today, but for me, it's a big day. It's the last day of the Premier League season and all that, and I'm just thinking about sports a lot lately, okay? But, but we see this play out in the arena of sports, and so uh, I'll use this as an example. It is going to be rare that you find a team that doesn't so- suffer some sort of setback or loss over the course of the season, okay? Maybe it was the loss of a key player or, or some sort of coaching personnel, Maybe it was going behind early or late in one uh, particular game or more particular games, okay? Um, Maybe it's making a key mistake. The, The idea of a perfect season or a flawless victory is very, very rare because when you suffer a setback, you learn a lesson, okay? If you lose a key player, you either have to learn how to play without them or wait for them to get back, or someone else who you didn't, you didn't know what was gonna be as good as they are, this unknown gem kind of rises up and steps up and takes, uh, takes the role on. Okay? If you If you go behind in a game, you have to figure out how you're going to rally and get back into that game. If you make a key mistake, how often do you see players and coaches and they're looking at their iPads and they're watching the film and all, what, all that and they're saying, okay, this is what you didn't see, this is what you tried, but this is what you should have done. They're trying to learn from what happened in order to not avoid that mistake again. In other words, setback is part of the game. Sometimes we do lose the battle, okay? That's the reality. Sometimes we lose the battle. Paul was persecuted and in danger every single day and he tells the Corinthians all about it in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, okay? The, the, the cross, when you, when you look at Jesus and, and when he got crucified and, and buried and put in the grave, okay, that was a setback by our human filter, by, by how uh, the disciples understood it, that was a setback. Even though um, he, Jesus had promised that he would rise again, even though um, it, it, it looked like they had lost, okay, they, they still felt every bit of that, despite all the promises that that this would happen, despite Jesus saying, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to rebuild the temple, all of these things, they still felt that and they still felt the setback. But without the cross, there would be no resurrection. And then as Paul goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what we are doing right this minute, what I am doing right this minute and what you are doing right this minute and listening to me. It's all a waste. We might as well go home. But we believe that Jesus did rise from the dead, and so this is important for us, okay? You can't have these things without the others. If you want resurrection and victory over death, then you have to have the cross. And for us, what that means is that we can't expect victory to come without opposition, without setbacks, and without moments where everything feels lost. Okay, In, in, in storytelling, specifically in the, uh, in the realm of of screenwriting, there's what they call the all is lost moment, okay? It's usually towards the end of the story, like towards the end of act two or so, um, before the climax starts to happen, where th- it's the moment where the hero or the main character just kind of loses hope. Everything is lost. They're, they can't see a way forward. How on earth are they gonna move out of this? How on earth are they gonna overcome this obstacle that they have to overcome? And I was thinking about these different kinds of moments, and um, one of the ones for me uh, that 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 pops to mind really easily is in uh, the third installment of the Lord of the Rings, okay, in in Return of the King. And I got to thinking about how towards the end, um, Gollum and Sam and Frodo are headed up, and Gollum's taking them into Shelob's lair and and whatnot. But Gollum frames Sam. So if you're not familiar with the story, Sam and Frodo are best friends, um, and and. And Sam has Frodo's back at all times, but Gollum comes along and tries to convince Frodo that Sam does not have his back, that he ate the last bit of bread that they had, and he actually just threw it over the side of the cliff. And so Frodo tells Sam to go home. And Sam is going home, and he's going down the mountain, and through tears and through um, you know, slipping down the mountain, he discovers the, uh, the, the um, little envelope that had the bread in it and the crumbs of bread. And he discovers, he realizes in that moment that it was Gollum who threw it over uh, the edge of the mountain. And so in the middle of all that, Sam realizes who Gollum really is. And so he turns around and he goes back up and he rescues Frodo and then that's how they're able to move forward. So the point is, the point of that moment is what you learn from the setback. Okay? Will the setbacks, will the losses, will the mistakes, will whatever it is, whatever it is that makes us feel like all is lost, will it actually count for something? Okay? When you have your own all is lost moment, When you've made a mistake and now you're bearing the consequences, will you let it crush you and end you or are you going to learn from it and figure out how you can move forward? If you have relapsed into an addiction or some sort of pattern of behavior that you thought that you had kind of figured out, are you going to just sit there and say, well, I messed up, I lost, I fell again or whatever? Or are you going to identify what led you to that point and figure out how you cannot make that mistake Again, if you've seen yet another relationship that you're in crash and burn in your life, are you just gonna blame that person or are you going to consider the possibility that maybe I have something to do with this? Again, I'm not saying you do, I'm not saying it's your fault, I'm just saying we have to take on an attitude where maybe I have something that I can do differently. If you've run out of money yet again, are you just gonna assume that the problem is your job and you're not getting paid enough or are you gonna do something are you gonna create a budget right, and figure out how you can avoid this thing in the future? Here's the point. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, "I've learned how to be abased and how to abound." In other words, I've learned how to keep going even when everything's difficult and everything's crashing and burning, and I've also learned how to keep moving forward when everything's going well. And we would do well to learn how to do that too. So the first step for us is that we're going to have to understand that temporary losses are part and parcel of a victorious life. If we're going to move forward, that means that there's gonna be some opposition as, as, as paradoxical as that may seem, as contradictory as that might seem. Okay, the second thing we wanna notice is that an enemy is a necessary part of victory. And you're like, thanks, Captain Obvious, duh, right? <clears throat> but seriously, how often do we take this idea of living victorious or the concept of victory and, and, and we kind of treat it like if I'm gonna be victorious then there's no more opposition, no more enemy, no more struggle, Okay? If there's no enemy, then there's nothing to defeat. Okay, That's the problem. Okay? So let, let's look for just a minute in the book of Revelation. And I'm not going to pretend that I have my head all around Revelation. Okay? But Revelation, in a, in a weird and strange and interesting way, Revelation is a combination of a lot of already, some stuff that, is, that has happened, some now, that, some present reality, and some not yet some things that are going to happen in the future. And so we understand, looking towards the end of Revelation, in Revelation 20, we understand that the the day is coming when the devil, when Satan himself, will be cast into the lake of fire. But until that day, he is waging war on the earth. And so if you back up in Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to put the key verses on the screen for you. In Revelation 12, John gives the account of his vision of the dragon, who he explicitly identifies as being Satan, okay, fighting against Michael and the angels in heaven. Now, that's not happening right now. That happened. Okay? That happened previously. Um, but, but they were defeated and they were cast out. Okay? So in Revelation 12, 9, it says, And the dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay? So don't miss that. Thrown down to the earth, a.k.a. here. A.k.a. he gets... He gets to to operate right here and right now in this realm. And he goes on to say in Revelation 12, 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. Woe to us, okay? For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, why would he know that his time is short? Because Jesus has already been to the cross and, and resurrected, and so there's... There's the already, but here's the not yet, right? It gets all kinds of all over the place. But the point is, the devil is ticked off. He is not a happy camper. He is not someone with good intentions. He's not unlike an abuser who has a way of kind of charming you and and knows how to get your attention to make you think that you're safe, to make you think that you're going to be okay. But I think too often, we kind of look at the devil like he's some sort of prankster, like, he's just trying to, trying to kind of pull a fast one on us. If you play Mario Kart, I just have the vision of, like, throwing the banana peel. He's just trying to play a trick on you. He's just trying to do something that's going to temporarily set you back, but he'll leave you alone. That's not the case, okay? The devil is trying to kill you. The devil is trying to absolutely wreck your life. He's trying to rob God of as much glory as possible and kill off as much of his creation as possible. It goes on, okay, in Revelation twelve seventeen, the first part of the verse Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those, don't miss this, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so guess what? The enemy has a specific target. And if you have made it your aim to obey God with your life and to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, you are the target. He wants to wreak havoc on your life, your family, your marriage, your heart, every part of you that is commanded to love God. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, all of that, your entire life is a target of the enemy because he wants to make you quit. He wants to make you, he wants to make you think that this is not worth it. He wants to make you think that God does not deserve your praise. So he will use anything and everything that he possibly can, suffering, cancer, abuse, sickness, he'll use the imperfection and and sins and mistakes of other people that have affected you to make you think that God doesn't deserve your praise, okay? He'll make you try to think that if this is what God is like, if God won't step in and fix everything the way that I want him to and when I want him to, then he doesn't doesn't deserve my praise. He's, He's not worthy of any of it. But here's the deal. Perseverance is a necessary part of victory. If we can expect setback and losses, if we can accept opposition, then it stands to reason that we are going to have to persevere. We're going to have to get through it. If we want to cross the finish line, if we want to see the day when God puts all things in subjection under his feet, when the devil and his angels are finally thrown into the fire, when our perishable bodies put on what's imperishable and we are raised to be with Christ, then we have to persevere. We keep walking. We don't get to sit on the side of the road and just wait for it all to pass us by. We have to keep persevering. We have to keep obeying the commandments of God and holding fast to the testimony of Jesus. The narrative of scripture, all through it, you see perseverance time and time and time again. A few examples come to mind of of Job persevering through suffering, even when his wife said, curse God and die. He said, I'm not gonna do that. I can't do that. We think of Joseph persevering through being sold into slavery and imprisoned even after being given a position in Potiphar's house. Even when things were going well for him and he experienced setback, he kept going. He didn't quit. You think of Moses persevering through the tribulation of the Israelites in Egypt, the difficulty of leading the Israelites when they got released from Egypt. We think of Jesus persevering through the pain, the lashes, the nails, the mocking and the scorn. Scripture said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame for us. We think of Paul running his race, keeping the faith, and receiving his reward where he got to go and to be with Christ. We don't get to quit when the going gets tough. We don't. Because the going has to get tough for there to be victory at all. And so I want to encourage you this morning with the final thing that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in that particular section. He said, therefore, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, not sitting back and occasionally doing it when you feel like it or when things are going well, but always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And so what I want to encourage you in in this morning is for you not to give up. Don't give up on your marriage when it's difficult. Don't give up on your family. Don't give up on the people around you. Don't give up on your own sanctification, the process of you being made more and more like Jesus. I know that some of you probably feel like you have messed up beyond what God can possibly use. And yes, he'll let you be in the family, but he's not going to give you a role to play. I've been there. Okay, trust me. I've been there. I've felt like, okay, God loves me, but he's not going to give me something to do. He's not going to use me. He's not going to entrust me with any responsibilities because he knows that I can't handle it. So he's just going to love me because he's supposed to love me, but that's going to be about it. No, God is inviting you to get up and to keep moving forward. So don't give up, dare I say it, on yourself. But ultimately don't give up on God. Don't give up on what God is trying to do in your life, in the lives of people around you. Don't give up on the promises that He's made in your life. Just because His timing is not what you expect, just because the way that He does it is not what you expect, don't give up. We're called to persevere. We're called to be steadfast, to be immovable, to abound in the work of the Lord. And so that's what I wanna encourage you in this morning. These people are up here on either side of of this little extension here to pray with you about whatever it is that's going on. Maybe there's a place in your life where you specifically feel that you need to persevere. Maybe there's something else going on entirely. Maybe you're facing something medically or financially or relationally, whatever it is. I wanna encourage you, to come up and to receive prayer. You don't have to tell these people anything at all. You can tell them whatever you want, but you can just say, just pray for me. And they'll pray for you. Because we believe that the Holy Spirit sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and he will give these people a word to say to you, to lift you up and to help you to keep going. And so I wanna encourage you not to miss the opportunity to receive prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, we wanna thank you for who you are. We want to thank you for the victory that you achieved on our behalf through the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you paid our sin debt, but you also raised Jesus from the dead so that we can move forward in resurrection power. Father, if there are people in here this morning who are feeling discouraged, who are feeling like they don't see a way forward, who are feeling like all might just be lost, I just ask and pray that, that... you would help us, God, to to move forward. That you would help us to just take one step at a time, to put put one foot in front of the other and to keep moving after you. God, you, in Jesus Christ, you are the good shepherd. And I know that your word promises that you keep us and nothing can take us out of your hand. And so I just wanna pray that over these people this morning, that nothing would take them out of your hand nothing that they experience, nothing that they've already done, nothing that they can say, nothing can take them out of your love and your favor and your grace upon them. So Holy Spirit, we invite you. Encourage us where you need to encourage us. Challenge us where you need to challenge us. Correct us where you need to correct us. But God, comfort us where we need to be comforted. We need you, God. We can't do this without you. So we just invite you. We submit ourselves to you. We wanna make ourselves available to you For whatever it is that you want to say this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you to um, stand, or if you want to, you can remain uh, seated as we sing this final song, but don't miss the opportunity to be prayed for this morning if that's what.